Well, good morning, church. Great, great to see you. Oh, glad to see you're awake. That's awesome. Extra hour of sleep. That's great. Uh, you know, it's great to be here. It's great to hear you guys singing and worshiping God and, and saying to God, you know, even when the oceans rise, even when all the problems come, I'm still going to trust in you, God. That's why we're here. That's why we gather in this place. That's why we come here to encourage one another, to build each other up in the faith. So I'm so glad you're here. You know, sometimes in our lives, we dive into things without much preparation. You know, um, I remember this one time I was out at Betty Hobbs' trailer, and, uh, you know, we, were, we borrow their trailer once in a while, and, and she, she would just say, well, if you could just do this little job for me. And I'm like, yeah, that's the least I could do. We're using your trailer for the week. So one time she had me build this barbecue. Well, I, I whipped open the instruction manual, flipped through it real quickly, and then threw it aside and started building the barbecue. And I got this whole barbecue built, and I'm just trying to put one last part on. I think it was the lid or something. And one last part. And I couldn't get it on. And it's like, how are you supposed to do this? I, I'm looking at Finally, I had to go back to the instruction manual and open it up. Look, how is this done? I couldn't find it. It wasn't at the end where I expected it to be. And I looked through it and, oh, there it is on page one. <laughs> oh, shoot. I missed that step. Oh, man. I had to take the whole thing apart just to put that one piece back in. You know, sometimes we miss prerequisites in our lives. And you know what? One of the things I've noticed that whenever I preach, I need the prerequisite of prayer. And I missed that just now. So let's pray. <laughs> Father, dedicating a sermon, a time of listening to you, is a prerequisite for hearing your voice. And so, Lord, we just ask this morning that you would, in fact, come into this place and touch our hearts Awaken our minds to the truths of your word so that we could have a fresh encounter with the living God because we were in church this morning. Lord, I pray that you would be here, and that it wouldn't be uh, just a, a prerequisite, something that, oh, well, we can do without the, the prayer. But Lord, this prayer brings power. And so we ask, Lord, that your power will be present with us this morning. I pray that you would anoint me as I speak your word. I pray that I would be able to speak it in truth. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, there's no, there's no, nothing that I can do to make that happen but ask you for it. And so, Lord, I ask that you would empower me afresh with the power of the Holy Spirit. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, prerequisites are amazing things. There's something that has to be done before you get into something else. And, you know, when I was uh, going to college, university, I was taking an engineering course, and um, I, I looked at the, the thing that, um, that tells you what courses you're supposed to take, and, and someone said, well, this is first-year engineering, so you've got to take sciences and English. These are the things that you have to do. And so I, I, I looked down, and I went, okay, I'll take English, chemistry, calculus, physics, biology, that's a bit of a heavy load, but, you know, I just breezed through high school, so how, how bad could it be, right? And I noticed that there, on the, there was this little column after the, all the courses, and it said prerequisites. 
And it says, strongly suggest that you have, you know, grade 11 and 12 for, for chemistry and for, for calculus, grade 11 and 12 math, and for English, same thing, and all the different ones. And I went, yeah, okay, well, I got most of them, just biology. I, I, I never took biology. Never had a single biology course in my life. It'll be okay. How bad can it be? I'm a smart guy. I'll just do a little extra studying. I'll catch up. It won't be a problem. So I'll never forget my first biology class. I step into the room, sit down in my class, and the teacher starts talking. And it may as well have been Greek to me. I had no idea what she was talking about. No clue. And so I studied, you know, I looked through the textbook, and I, and I had no idea what the textbook was talking about. <laughs> and I went, and my poor lab partner, you know, I had a, had a guy who didn't know what was going on for his lab partner. And I got to the final exam, and, you know, I answered every question in the final exam. But I answered it by kind of rewriting the question. And, uh, you know, making it sound like I knew what I was talking about, trying to as best I could. I was there for like, yeah, yeah. Alan's nodding and said, oh, yeah, I do that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Had no idea what I was talking Well, the teacher was not fooled. And I got an F on that course. It was a prerequisite, and I missed it. I just didn't do it. And, you know, church, when we go into ministry, sometimes we forget an absolutely vital part of going into ministry. And I don't care what the ministry is. It could be mowing the lawn or, or teaching thousands of people from a pulpit. It doesn't really matter what the ministry is. There is prerequisites for ministry, whatever kind of ministry it might be. And it's vital that we have them. And so I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 6. We're going through the book of Acts. And uh, we're going to look at chapter 6, the first seven verses right now. And uh, I'm, I'm going to read all of it eventually through the sermon. But I'm just going to kind of read it bit by bit. Acts chapter 7. And in here we're going to find some vital prerequisites for ministry. Well, the, the passage starts out with, in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. So it's kind of cool. Right off the bat, uh, Luke says about this church that this church was growing. There was healthy church growth here. This was a healthy church. It's, it's the first church. It's the church in Jerusalem. It was run by 12 apostles. I mean, what could go wrong? I mean, this is, this is a great church. And uh, they were, you know, God, God would show up. I mean, two weeks ago, we talked about how... Uh, how God showed up and, and brought judgment on people who were lying to the Holy Spirit. And then last week, Joshua talked about how the, the apostles went out and they were healing people. In fact, in fact, Peter's shadow would just cross over people and they'd be healed. And, uh, you know, they got thrown in prison. And, and uh, the, the word of God was, and an angel released them. The word of God was spreading. And, and the church, it was an amazing church. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? Yeah, I often thought, man, that would be really cool to be part of that first church. It was an awesome church. Um, but just because things were going great, and just because the Holy Spirit was working powerfully in this church, doesn't mean there wasn't problems in this church. And the verse continues on. Church is growing, and the number of disciples is increasing, and the Hellenistic Jews among them complain against the Hebraic Jews because their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I am so glad that this verse is in the Bible. 
You know why I'm glad this verse is in the Bible? Because it makes me feel like, oh, phew, the Holy Spirit hasn't left our church every time someone complains about something. <laughs> you know, because it happens a lot. <laughs> and I'm just like, phew, I'm glad the first church had to deal with issues and problems. And there were people complaining about these other people. And, oh, man, what was going on? And, you know, people make mistakes. And it doesn't mean just because there's problems in the church that the Holy Spirit isn't there. Praise God for that. It doesn't mean that God has left the building. No. It just means that you got to work on something. And God has called leaders to lead and people to be kind to one another and do all these things. And here uh, was a church with a problem. And well, what, what was the problem here? What, what is this, Hellenistic Jews and in Hebraic Jews, what is that all about? Well, basically, what it's about is that that right at this point, there were only basically Jews in the church. Because even on the day of Pentecost, even though people were from all over the place, they were all Jewish people there to celebrate the Passover. And so uh, when they came to Jerusalem, all these different Jewish people from all over the world they're called Hellenistic Jews. In other words, they're, or, or sometimes it's, it's, they're called Grecian Jews. It's because they were completely submerged in Grecian culture. Out, they weren't in Jerusalem. They were from outside of Jerusalem. They lived there all their lives probably. And they started uh, just doing things the way everyone around them does. Uh, just like when, uh, you know, when my grandparents came over here from Holland, it didn't take them very long to just leave their wooden shoes in the closet, right? Because uh, they started doing everything the same way everyone here in Canada does it. And so it was with the Jews living in the diaspora. They sort of did things the way everyone else did. But here they were back in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there were these, you know, Orthodox Jews kind of keeping the old ways. And there was a bit of, you know, like, yeah, what makes you think, you know, like you're kind of, You've forgotten our, our Jewish ways. You're kind of looking pretty Greek, pretty Hellenistic, pretty secular there. And it seemed like the Jews that were from Jerusalem, the Hebraic Jews, were kind of looking at the uh, Hellenistic Jews kind of as second class. And so when the food was being passed around, well, they gave the leftovers, maybe, to the Hellenistic Jews while the Hebraic uh, widows had their full. And somebody said, hey, this, this isn't right. In God's church, there shouldn't be discrimination just because uh, you dress a little different. Just because you speak Greek instead of Aramaic doesn't make you a second-rate person. Now, some of this could have been innocent, right? Uh, I don't know about you, but I've noticed in our church and in almost any church I've ever been in, people who are similar tend to hang out together. And there's not a lot of people going, you know, there's sometimes there's these little cliques kind of thing. They're not, they're not evil in and of themselves um, because people feel comfortable with this kind of people, similar to themselves, and, and the same over here. But the problem is when it starts becoming where some people aren't being looked after just because of who they are. And that became this big problem. And... Uh, and so in verse 2, what does it say? The 12 gathered the disciples together. Notice that the 12 and the disciples are two distinct groups here. Okay? Anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the 12 disciples were sort of the first ones. They're now called apostles most of the time, or the 12. 
And this is what they said. So the 12 gathered the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, when I read this, I, I kind of get this feeling, a little bit of insight in the, how the apostles felt about this complaint. You, you can just sort of see it there. I mean, I mean, think about it. The apostles are preaching, and, and you know, Ananias comes in and gives some money, and, and, and right away, Peter recognizes there's a problem. God strikes Ananias dead, same with Sapphira. I mean, whew, shock and awe going on, like, whoa. And, and then they're out, you know, they're preaching, they're healing people, and people are waiting for their shadow to, to, to cross over them, and, wow, they're getting healed. People are getting healed right, left, and center. And, uh, and then they're, they're put into prison, and, and an angel comes and opens the door and says, hey, guys, come on out and go back to the temple and preach the word. And so they go back to the temple, and there they get arrested again. I mean, this is amazing. And they, they're arrested, and, and, and they have this chance to, to speak the word of God to the Sanhedrin and can and share the gospel powerfully. And the Sanhedrin doesn't care, and they flog them. I mean, their backs are all ripped open and shredded, and, uh, and then they get back to their church, and oh, they're not being nice to me. <laughs> and I just get the feeling that these apostles are like, oh, give me a break. <laughs> I mean, really? You can't figure this out yourself. And so then it says, we're, we're going to stop ministering the word to wait on tables. It's almost like it's derogatory. It's just like, really? Come on. I, I don't know if that's really the case, but that's just the feeling I get. And, and sorry, maybe it's just me, because sometimes that's the feeling I have. <laughs> God is moving, and then somebody has this little concern. And so sometimes, uh, I don't know, it doesn't say that they rolled their eyes, but I almost get that feeling. But then... They came up with a solution, didn't they? They had a great solution. And I think that happens to a lot of people. You know, we hear a complaint, and we're like, oh, come on. And then we go, you know what? No, this is a legit complaint. This is legit. We need to do something about that. And that's what the apostles did. They went, yeah, okay, this is legit. And, uh, but uh, we're kind of busy, you know? We're raising sick people, and we're preaching the gospel. And, and uh, man, we, we're only 12 of us. We can't do everything. And... Uh, so, you know, they were called to preach. It's not like this passage, they're, they're just like, oh, come on. You know, we got better things to do. They're not being, you know, holier than thou. They were called by Jesus Christ himself to take the gospel to the whole world. So it was vital that this work continued on. But it was also vital that discrimination wasn't allowed to fester in the church. You know, last week I was challenged. Uh, you know, pastor, you know, you're so busy with the building project, sometimes you forget to minister to the church. And I had to go home and think about that, and yeah. Yeah, I need to make sure that I keep the priority of preaching and teaching and, and counseling and leading people high. That needs to be number one. And, and sometimes, yeah, I get distracted. And so it's, it was a challenge to me, even as I read this, kind of like God going, yeah, this is you, Bill, this in here? Yeah, you. <laughs> Smarten up. So, you know, the, this, is, this is so vital to keep the first things, the prime things, the prime things. But this is, here's the solution. Verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you. Notice how they say from among you. Choose seven men from among you. It wasn't like the, the apostles said, oh, we'll find some people to do this. They actually 
sent it back to the congregation. I think this is the first democratically elected deacons in the Bible. <laughs> Here they are. They're choosing their own people to do this ministry. And, uh, and the, the, it goes on. Um, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And it goes on. The proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and also Philip and Pornocorus, Nicanor, uh, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism, and they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So here, here we have these seven men chosen. Now, you notice that these seven men aren't called Reuben and David, and they don't have Jewish names. They have Grecian names. So in other words, the, the people went, you know what, this is a problem for the Grecians, and we need to make sure that we have some Greek guys in here to make sure that the widows of the Grecian widows are served. And so that, that just makes sense. That's wisdom. They chose some right people to serve. These people would be more, more sensitive to the issues of the, the widows who are being overlooked. And so a lot of times, problems in the church just need logical answers. That's all. It just needs someone to, 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 to get involved and to choose some people and, and put it together. But this morning... What I really want to focus on is one thing that the apostles said about the men who were supposed to wait on tables. What did they say? What was the prerequisite? They need to be filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. Huge prerequisite. Absolutely vital for this ministry that they be filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. Now, when you hear that, doesn't it sound a little bit odd to you that the apostles would, would require that these men be filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom? I mean, if they were being called to go on a missions trip, yeah, okay, for sure. Make sure they're spirit-filled and men of wisdom. Or if they were being called to preach or lead a Sunday school class or do a small group ministry or something, you know, that required theological astuteness, then yeah, then they'd be, yeah, of course, need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But, I mean, to just make sure that the widow's got enough food, I mean, can't anybody do that? Like, what's the deal? Why, why do these guys have to be filled with the Holy Spirit for that? I mean, I mean, we, we have our, our men's breakfast every once in a while here, you know, and the guys sit in the, in the kitchen there, and they scoop the scrambled eggs, and they dump it on your plate, and they scoop some toast, and they put it on your plate. Everybody gets the same amount. doesn't matter if you're the pastor. and smile a lot. They still go, after, after, get out of here. Get going, you know. It's not that complicated, you know. You know, like, why do you have to be a, uh, you know, a spirit-filled person to serve scrambled eggs and, and bacon? You know, I mean, it's, I don't know. I, I'm a little surprised. I'm like, okay, what's this all about? And I think that we need to go to another passage of scripture to find out what's this all about. Why do these guys need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom? To, to serve tables, to be waiters. I mean, it doesn't seem right. Well, I think one answer to that question, really, probably the main answer is that it doesn't matter what the ministry is, no matter how menial, no matter how small 
the ministry is, the requirement is the same. That we be filled with the Holy Spirit. That we do the ministry in the power of God, not in our own power. And that's what I believe about our church here. That we all, all of us who are involved in ministry or, or wanting to be involved in ministry, there's a prerequisite. And that is that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. You turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I don't have it on the slides. But I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because I believe it really impacts this idea that everybody needs to be filled with the Spirit in, in order to do whatever job they're doing. I'm going to read most of the chapter, actually, from verse 12. Just as the body... The one has many parts, but all its parts are form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. Now, think about this. The foot is not as obviously important as the hands. Our hands, you know, I would rather lose my legs than lose my arms. Because at least I could go on a wheelchair and push it, you know. Um, but if you lose your arms, I mean, ay yeah, yeah. how can you do anything? You know, sure, you can walk places, but... And so, I think sometimes, maybe the feet might feel like, hey, we're not as important as the hands... Kind of looking out for that. Same with the ear. You know, ear, important, yes, but eyes. Now those, those are important. And I think sometimes when we look around the church, we think, oh, the pastor, he's got an important job. Or, oh, the elders, they have important jobs. But me, you know, I'm just in the sound room trying to keep this sound proper in here so people can hear. And it's not very important. Well, I can preach all I want. But if you Right? <laughs> so we need everybody. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. And the body is a whole. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? I'm telling you, I go back in that sound room over there and I'm just confused. I mean, I used to know how to run that thing, but now, oh my goodness, there's a bazillion buttons and dials, and oh, luckily my son knows how to do it. I phone him up. Aaron, can you help me turn this thing on? <laughs> you know, We need each other. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker in, are indispensable. And the parts that are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that all parts should have equal concern for each other. One part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and every one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in his church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helps, guidance, different kinds of tongues. 
Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gift of healings? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No, you eagerly desire the greater gifts. So Paul is basically saying, you know, there's all kinds of things that people do. There's different jobs. And, and God has equipped each Christian in a special way to do a special ministry. And if you're not involved in any ministry at all, then you're not obeying this passage that says you have a gift and you're not using it for the church. The church is not being benefited by the gift that God is giving you. You're being selfish, honestly. That's exactly what it says. But I want you to know something about this description of the parts of the body and all the different things that people ought to be doing. We often th- see these things in, oh, the gift of helps or the gift of uh, mercy or the gift of teaching. Uh, you know, those things can be done just by being a nice person, kind of. But that's not the way they're described in this chapter. Look at, look at verse 4, 5, and 6, and 7. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of servants, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but in all of them and in everyone... It is the same God at work. Who's at work? God's at work. So if your ministry is in the sound booth or mowing the lawn or looking after, you know, changing diapers, who is involved in that ministry? God is involved in that ministry. And if your ministry is healing the sick and raising the dead and preaching the gospel, who's in that ministry? God's in that ministry. Look look what it says. It says, Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. What's a manifestation? A manifestation is when God shows up. How can God show up when you're changing diapers? I don't know exactly. (laughs) Don't have some clever answer to that question. (laughs) Just the first one that popped in my head. (laughs) But, But somehow... The Bible says that God shows up when we're involved in ministry. And maybe it's because we don't mind getting our hands dirty for the kingdom of God. You know, the early church was noted for the way they loved sick people. Even though they would get sick, they still cared for people. When no one else would be near the sick people, the church came in and ministered to them. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is powerful. When we see people giving of themselves beyond what is reasonable, we start going, that must be the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I don't know how God is manifested in all these different works, but I believe that without his manifestation, without him doing the ministry, it's really not a powerful ministry. It really doesn't have effect on people. It really doesn't change lives. But when God is involved in that ministry, it can change lives. And maybe someone will come along and say, wow, those people are pretty serious about about their commitment to Christ. I see that guy out there mowing the lawn every week, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't get paid for that. That's incredible. I don't know. But without the Holy Spirit being involved in the ministry, that won't happen. It just won't happen. But when the Holy Spirit is involved in the ministry, people are changed, and they're challenged.
Well, I want to go back to our passage in, in Acts. So if you flip back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at this verse, uh, verse 2 for a minute. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. That word wait on tables is actually deaconos. And deaconos, you might recognize, is the word we transliterate into deacon. It really literally means wait on or serve. And Jesus Christ's kingdom is filled with servants. And in fact, servants are the most... uh, The servant role is the most important role in the kingdom of God. You might go like, I thought it was preaching and teaching and praying. No, it's serving. And I can prove it. I will will prove it to you. Jesus was, was walking down the road one day and the disciples were behind him and they're arguing. They're talking about something and they get into the house and Jesus says to the disciples, he says, hey, you guys, what were you arguing about in the road? And they're like, (laughs) and they won't answer Jesus. He just asked them a simple question, and they're not answering. They're just like, "Uh, I don't know, Paul, you or Peter, you you say, no, 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 you say. And Jesus is going, I know you were arguing about who was the greatest, weren't you? They're all like, they knew it was wrong. But they were arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus says to them, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be what? Your servant. Whoever wants to be great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And listen to this, folks. Is there a slide for this? I'm not sure if there is. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. This goes all the way back to Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to be served. He didn't come as the ruler. Hey, apostles, you know, bow before me and get me my lunch and and you make sure that there's arrangement to, to do all these things. No. Jesus came to serve. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I think it might, it might be Jesus, do you think? Yeah, probably. And what did he come to do? To serve. In fact, every single one of us in this room have been served by Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He died for us so that our sins could be washed away, so that we could be with him forever in heaven. That is service. And Jesus Christ was the service, servant of all. And so, I just want to reiterate that point. That to serve, any, there is no such thing as a menial job in the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, you know, Henry Nguyen, he, he had a very powerful life, wrote many books, did powerful things. And uh, was sought after a teacher and preacher. But you know where he spent the last 10 years of his life? In a mental home. Not because he was mental. Because he cared for the people there. And he would change diapers and be with one guy in particular 
the last 10 years, that's what he decided was the most important role for Henry Nguyen, was to help those who couldn't help themselves. And he kind of stepped out of the public ministry to do a private ministry. Whoa, that speaks volumes. Absolutely volumes. And now look at verse 7. We haven't read this verse yet. Can we get it up on the screen, please? Verse 7. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Hold it a sec. In the previous chapter, they were, um, you know, spreading the gospel, healing the sick, getting released from prison. And it says the number of disciples was increasing. Here, they're waiting on tables, making sure it gets sorted out. And what does it say? The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. It's not just increasing now, it's just exponential. Boom. (laughs) I love that. It's not for the preaching. It's from waiting on tables. It's making sure everybody is served. It's making sure that the distribution of the, of the food is done properly. That's when the thing really takes off. I'm just like, that is so bizarre. Have you ever noticed that? It's just like, wow. These seven guys filled with the Holy Spirit, making sure the food gets distributed properly, are part of uh, the priests coming to faith. I mean, that's, that's the connection, isn't it? I can't see any other connection. Many priests becoming obedient to the faith. Huge results. You know, church, without deacons, without servants in the church, the gospel will not flourish. The church will not grow rapidly. It will die a slow death, actually. Amen. <laughs> you know, Jesus told a parable one time about talents. You know, he says, you know, some people have like five talents, some people have three talents, some people have one or two talents, different amount of talents, different people. But it depends what you do with the talents, whether or not you get commended or not. And so, you know, you might have, you might be a one-talent person or a ten-talent person, I don't know what you are. But if we, if we are diligent in our service to the church and to Christ's kingdom, Christ will come and he'll say these words. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And, you know, and and when Luke tells the same story, he says, and the the master took the one uh, talent from the one guy and he gave it to the guy with 10. And, And the bystander said, hey, he's already got 10. Why does he need another one? And God said, you know what? If you've been faithful in the small things, I'll actually put you in charge of cities. And here's the deal. These seven guys that were called into ministry to be servants of the church, to wait on tables, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I believe they did their job so well that the gospel started spreading powerfully. And then they started doing the very things that the apostles were doing on top of their ministering role their servant role, they started preaching and teaching with power. Because two of these guys, Stephen and Philip, had a powerful ministry. And so, you know, I think that sometimes God puts us in uh, tasks that are seemingly menial to ensure that we are, we are serving the church, that service comes first. You know, it's interesting uh, when, when new people come to our church, 
it does, it's often that they will approach myself or Jennifer very quickly and ask if they can teach or lead worship. It just seems to be sort of like people want, oh, I want that job, you know, I want, I want to do that really cool thing first. But I believe God sometimes puts us in menial tasks. You know, I didn't start out as a preacher. I started out, you know, looking after the gardens at, at a Bible camp. That was my first ministry. Actually, my first ministry was changing diapers in the nursery. <laughs> That's actually what it was, you know. And, and God calls us to be the servant first. And if we are faithful with those jobs, then he says, okay, now I want you to do some other things. I have a little clip. Uh, do we have the video or, or not? Can we show this video? I mean, this is what I want to do, like, tomorrow. This is what Kendall did yesterday. Check this out. Now that's fun. Thanks. That's good. <laughs> I want to do that. I want to get up on a plane yeah, tomorrow and do that. But you know what? That's not where Kendall started. He was doing aerobatics yesterday, and I'm so jealous. And I said, can I come? And he says, there's no room in the plane, Dad. <laughs> get away. <laughs> ah, it looks fun. Where's Jerry? You into it, Jerry? Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's like, well, I don't know, going upside down. I don't know. <laughs> but you know what? You don't start there. Kendall has been working for a year and a bit. On his pilot, he's got his pilot's license. Now he went up for one aerobatic class. Had a blast. Got a little queasy feeling. <laughs> After a few more, more rolls and loops and stuff, uh, he's kind of feeling, ooh, phew, that's a quite a bit. But, you know, we don't start there. That's sort of like the cool, flashy thing. But you don't start first thing, oh, I'm going to do a barrel roll in an airplane. And uh, no. learn how to fly it first. Learn how to land it first. So what is this prerequisite we've been talking about? What is this thing that we need? Like all these men saying, you know, like, they got to be filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. What is that? How do I get that? How do I attain that prerequisite? Well, sometimes people get a little bit confused about what is the Holy Spirit and what is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And um, one of the things that the Bible makes abundantly clear, particularly in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, where, where it says that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ are not part of Christ. They do not belong to Christ. The fact is that every Christian, when they accept Christ as their Savior, they are what's called born again. And, and remember what, how Jesus describes it? They're born of the Spirit. So they, they receive the Spirit of God inside them when they become a believer. But you know what? It's, it's obvious from this passage that not all the people in the church, not this passage, the passage we're in Acts, the one we're looking at, that not all the people in the church were filled with the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Because otherwise they wouldn't have to look for the seven. I mean, there's 5,000 people, but there, it's clear that the apostles are saying, but only a, only a group of them are filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. There's lots who aren't qualified to do ministry. So what is this filling? What does it mean to be filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus 
said it was so important that you get baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit that he told the disciples not to go off preaching. First he gave them the command, you know, go preach the gospel to all nations. But then a few days later, he says, oh, by the way, wait in Jerusalem. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes on you because then you'll be ready to be my, my uh, witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and, and to the other parts of the world. It's only after you receive the filling of the Holy Spirit that you, will you be ready to, to do ministry. And um, so, so how come they weren't all filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, the last verse, verse 31, uh, after they had prayed, you know, they, they, they had experienced some persecution and they prayed. And then the Bible says that, that after they prayed, the place was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So why weren't they all filled with the Holy Spirit by chapter 6? Like, and really, it's a bit of a mystery as you go through the book of Acts to figure out how is this Holy Spirit thing working. I mean, he, he, he comes into people, he dwells in them, but it doesn't seem like they're fully and filled with the Holy Spirit unless God seems to do an outpouring of his spirit at special times for special things and, and on special people, it seems. It's, it's really hard to figure it all out. So what I've done is, because I, 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 the whole sermon isn't on the filling of the Holy Spirit, so I've cheated and I've just gone shortcutted right to our, doc, our statement of faith. We've done a lot of the work on what, what does it mean in the, in, the, uh, in the book of Acts, and the Alliance has distilled it to this, this statement of faith. It's article number seven. Christian living. It is the will of God that in union with Christ, each believer should be sanctified thoroughly, whereby being separated from sin in the world and fully dedicated to God, receiving power for holy living and sacrificial and effective service towards the completion of Christ's commission. This is accomplished through being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is both a distinct event and a progressive experience in the life of the believer. So basically what it's saying is there's two things that the filling of the Holy Spirit does. It gives you power to live a holy life. It gives you power to say no to sin, especially the, those habitual sins that, that nag us. We only have the power to say no to those things when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So if, you're, if you don't have the, the power to say no to those things, chances are, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit the way God wants you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the other thing is, what does it say? For, uh, where does it say it? Uh, receive power for uh, holy living and sacrificial and effective service. Sacrificial and effective service. Service can only be effective when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. When we're so empowered with Christ that we can go about and do ministry and people's lives are changed just like that. It's like, it's almost like we don't have to do anything and they're changed. And we're like, whoa, what was that? That was the power of God. That was the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, so, so it's called both a distinct event and a progressive experience. You know what? I want to describe a distinct event. Day of Pentecost. Disciples are all praying. And all of a sudden, this rushing, roaring sound and tongues of fire and boom, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and they're preaching away. That's a distinct event. That was, whoa, boom. 
this, this, uh, the prayer meeting shaking and them all being filled with the Holy Spirit, that was a distinct event. Like, boom, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and went about preaching the word boldly. It creates instant change, instant power. It's exciting. And, and, but now I want to show you the progressive experience because I've often been told the filling of the Holy Spirit, we leak. It's like a bucket and it's got a hole in it and it just sort of dribbles out and slowly the filling drains away. I don't know if that's a, a good illustration or not, but when I look at my life, yeah, that makes sense. Um, because of these other verses, the progressive experience. Um, check out Galatians 5 verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, the filling of the Spirit is God's work, right? We don't fill ourselves with the Spirit. God does that. But what does this verse say? It kind of puts it in our court, doesn't it? That we need to keep up with the Spirit. We need to keep seeking and longing for the filling of the Spirit. And then there's uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, there's no real way. It doesn't really say, well, this is how you get filled. But the emphasis is on us, that we need to seek it. There's something that we need to do to maintain the filling of the Spirit. So when these seven guys were chosen, they were chosen because they were able to maintain that filling of the Spirit on a regular basis and an ongoing basis. And that's why they were chosen. Not because they had some fantastic experience 20 years ago. No, because right now... They are men known to be filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. It's not something that had happened a long time ago, drained out, and now, well, they said they had this big experience, but don't see much fruit here. You see, the, God desires a relationship with us one-on-one -on -one that is alive and moving and active, and it's happening right now. It's not, we can't live on the, the filling of the Spirit that happened when we were a teenager or when we were a kid. We need that action every day, all the time. Charles Finney, Finney well, you know, if you look down through the ages, you have these men of God who were filled with the Holy Spirit, lived powerful lives, and they wrote things about the filling of the Holy Spirit, and Charles Finney was one of these men. This is what he wrote. God gave him mighty infillings of the Holy Spirit that went through me, it seemed, my body and soul. I immediately found myself endued with such power from on high that a few words dropped here and there to individuals were the means of their immediate conversion. My worms seemed to be fastened like barbed arrows in the souls of men, and they cut like a sword, and they broke the heart like a hammer. Multitudes can attest to this. But he goes on. Later on, he says, Sometimes I would find myself in a great measure empty of this power. I would go and visit and find that I made no saving impression. I would exhort and pray, same results. I would then set apart a day for private fasting and prayer. And after humbling myself and crying out for help, the power would return upon me with all its freshness. And this has been the experience of my life. Amen. Amen. How long for that? As I was studying for this, I came across a pastor who said, 95% of what is done in evangelical churches can be done without the Holy Spirit. Oh, I pray that that's not true. 
but you know, programs and running soundboards and doing all this stuff, yeah, it can be done without the Holy Spirit. It can even be done well. It can look well. But no fruit. No lasting fruit. Paul says, my preaching and my teaching were not with wise and pervasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human's wisdom, but on God's power. I remember when I went to Egypt, you know, and I had prayed a lot before going, a lot of people were praying for me when I went to Egypt. And uh, I had taken along three or four sermons. And I get there, and there's no time for studying sermons when I got there. Remember? <laughs> We're just, and, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll preach once or twice down there. I'll choose between these sermons, depending on the occasion. Well, you know, after about three days, all my sermons were gone. You know, because they were having me preach day and night, it seemed. Like, every day I was preaching and teaching somewhere. And after a while, I was like, and then it was like, I need to rely on the Holy Spirit. And, you know, God just came through in spades. And I'll never forget one meeting where, you know, God just showed up. I don't know, there was hundreds of people there. And when, you know, I asked for an altar call, and the, and the guy said to me in English, because I, I was speaking English, he was translating he said, oh, uh, we don't really do altar calls here. And I'm like, ah, I think we should anyways. So did this altar call, and half, half the people showed up. And we were counseling those people till 3 a.m. God was just moving, stirring, just working. And I'm like, what is going on here? I don't know what's going on. What's going on is that God shows up. And when God shows up and the power of the Spirit's there, it doesn't really matter what you say. People are hungry and want God. Moody was uh, going to England and an elderly pastor protested, what do we need this Moody? He's uneducated, inexperienced. Who does he think he is anyway? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And a youngster, younger, wiser pastor rose and responded, no. But the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. Amen. I long for that. I want that. You might say, well, how do, how do we get filled with the Holy Spirit, Pastor? You know, the Bible doesn't have a recipe about being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no recipe in there. It just says do it. Oh, oh. The thing is, you know, have you ever explained to someone how to be in love with someone else? <laughs> There's really no recipe for being in love with someone. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to write that out. Well, first, you know, you, you say this to her, you say kind words, you know, and then you hug her. Or what? Listen, you can't do that. And, and I think there's no recipe for the filling of the Spirit in the Bible for a reason. I believe it's a relationship, and it requires everything. You know... What does it say about it? Don't be drunk with wine, but what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you get drunk with wine? Drink it. Drink too much. Yeah. You got to drink it, and you got to drink lots of it. And when you drink lots of it, you get drunk. Well, you know what? We got to do the same thing with the Spirit. We got to drink the Holy Spirit. We have to just, just get in there and kick back the Holy Spirit and drink of him. You know... Uh, Jesus said, um, or, or Paul said, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So it actually fits. I'm not heretical here. <laughs> uh, 
Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this is what he said about the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you drink the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul said those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. We drink the Spirit by setting our minds on the spiritual things, by looking, seeking, desiring God, going off in quiet times of prayer. And as Finney said, going out and fasting and praying and seeking God and asking Him to come and revive that feeling that we used to have and bring it alive again. <clears throat> Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And if you look at... Uh, uh, Galatians 5, verse 18 verse to 21, you notice there's a description of what happens when you're filled with the Spirit, speaking and singing psalms and all these things. And if you look at, the, at Colossians 3, verse 15 to 17, you have the same results. Um, speaking in psalms, hymns, and songs in the Spirit. But this time, it's because of the, of the result of being in the Word. Sorry, I don't have all these slides here. Um, but it's, it's the result of reading the word. So reading the word and praying. And Jesus also said, you don't have the Holy Spirit because you don't ask for it. But the Father wants to give you the Holy Spirit if you ask for it. So it's, a, it's this desire. It's this longing. It's this asking. It's this seeking. It's passionate desire to be with God. That is what brings about the filling of the Spirit in a Christian's life. Well, I'm going to close now. How many of you have heard of uh, Albert Durer? Anyone heard of Albert Durer? No, I never heard of him either. But he was an artist. He lived, you know, 600 years ago. No, 500 years ago. But he was an artist. And in, in the early 1500s, uh, Albert was a struggling artist, and he shared a room with another struggling artist. And they decided that they would, uh, that they 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 couldn't make a living on their artwork. So one of them was going to have to work while the other one did the art. And then, uh, then once the one made it in, in the field of art, then they'd switch places. And so they flipped a coin or something like that, and Albert got to be the artist. And he became reasonably well-known, and, and it came time where, okay, now our deal is that you're going to be the artist now. But his friend, by that time, his hands had been worked very hard. And uh, the story goes that he couldn't be an artist anymore because of all the labor that he had done. His hands were quite gnarled. And um, one day when Albert was, was making a portrait, a painting, he... Um, he heard a noise in the other room, and he went and he saw his friend, and his friend was praying at the table over some bread and wine. And Albert looked at it, and he said, oh, just, just hold that a sec. And he started drawing it, and uh, this is what he came up with. Ever seen that before? Yeah. You know, you, none of you knew who Albert Durer was, but you all recognized what his painting. And his painting was the hand of the laborer. That's what he painted. You know, how many elders do you know from the New Testament? But I know some deacons. I heard of seven of them today. You know, we might think that the flashy important thing is for us to preach and teach. But really, the important thing for us 
is to be close to God. That will bring lasting results that people will remember. Not some fantastic ministry, some ministry opportunity that's so great. That's not what's going to make it. That's not going to cut it in God's books. But were we faithful to God to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that our ministry came out of a life of prayer and seeking God? I'm telling you, folks, when I preach messages like this, I'm convicted. And I want what, what Finney talked about. I want the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I know that my walk with God is not what it should be. And I imagine there's some of you sitting there, yeah, you know what? I need the power of the Holy Spirit, and I haven't been walking with God. And I, I'd like to invite you to have a moment of silence. We're going we're to have a communion in just a moment. And I'm going to invite you that, that sometime before now in, in this communion table, before from now till, till this community, that, that you spend a few minutes just confessing and committing to being that diligent seeker after God so that it, you would have a dynamic relationship where the filling of the Holy Spirit is a daily event happening in your life, empowering your ministry. So you wouldn't be like Finney going, man, I talk to these people and nothing happens. I pray for this person and nothing happens. And so let's just spend a few minutes in prayer so that when we come to this table, we would come recognizing that there's a relationship that God is inviting us to in this table. So let's just spend a few minutes in silent prayer.